And welcome back to the podcast. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening so much. Um, very excited today to be sitting with Chef. Now, do you go by Andrew Little, Andy Little? Or? Andy's fine. Andy, okay, all right. Um, so we're sitting here in Prima uh, in Nashville, of course, for anybody that's outside of the city. Um, Nashville has absolutely gone through this sort of crazy renaissance for the past probably five or six years. I know it's, it's kind of cliche to say at this point, but it's really the easiest way to describe it for anybody that doesn't have a solid frame of reference on the city now, Chef, how long have you been living in Nashville? I've been here since August of 2013, Okay, so almost four years. Nice. Okay, so you came sort of right at the beginning or sort of like when the city was catching fire. You're so, sort of one of the people that really kind of, I feel like, helped shape it in a big way. I, uh, you know, when, when I came to Nashville, I was looking anywhere in the country and also anywhere in the world for, uh, for work, and... Frankly, came to Nashville because I'd never been here before. My wife is from Knoxville, and every time we would go visit her family, it was it always came up of, "Hey, do you want to go visit Nashville?" But it was another, you know, over three hours of what was already an eight-hour trip from Pennsylvania, and we just didn't. We're too lazy to make the drive. So when okay. the uh, the opportunity came up uh, to come down here and interview, it was also a well, let's you know, I'll go down and take this interview, and we'll take a couple days, and it'll be a, kind of a short vacation too. Um, so, you know, the, the opportunity came up. I researched Nashville a little bit. I was very familiar with what was happening here uh, for three restaurants in particular. One was City House, one was Rolf and Daughters, and the other was Catbird Seat. And then very quickly, um, Husk after that. But uh, I saw that, you know, Rolf and Daughters had gone on the, the Bon Appetit list of best new restaurants. I saw that uh, Josh and Eric were at Catbird at the time, and, and they were on the food and wine best new chefs list and so uh, to me it seemed that Nashville was starting to get some national recognition for um, their food scene they also had an uh, eater had a an outpost here which for me in the Northeast was very important Um, so I I paid a little bit more attention and you know being from Pennsylvania and living my entire life in between DC and New York I was the, you know, the stereotypical person that thinks Nashville is cowboy boots and the, you know, those five blocks of Broadway. Of course. Um, and when <laughs> I got here, you know, I, I also thought that Music Row was where all the honky tonks were and wasn't, you know, 16th. Uh, so coming here uh, to experience the the city uh, was a, a real neat, real neat experience for sure. Um, just to preface as well, we are, I typically film in working restaurants, and I get all the ambient sound that a restaurant provides. So there is a little bit of air kicking in in this room. So please forgive us for that. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna power on. So I wanted to back up just a little bit to speak about Pennsylvania. I mean, would you say, of course, this is where you grew up. This is what influences your food. Can you talk a little bit just kind of about where you grew up and, and what that culture was like, what that story was like? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a, a very small town. There were 98 people in my graduating class. Uh, high school class, um, very close to Gettysburg, but also very close within, you know, an hour to Baltimore, two hours to Philadelphia and D.C., a little over four hours to New York. Um, so I was, uh, it was really the best of both worlds. I was able to have what you could consider the, you know, uh, Wally and the Beaver sort of uh, small town life. But then my parents, who were both, uh, they're now retired public school teachers, it was very important to them that I was able to travel to all the places that we could get in a car and travel to. Mm -hmm. So going to Baltimore, going and visiting, 
Williamsburg, Virginia, uh, Richmond, and Philadelphia, and uh, New York was, a, I wouldn't say it was an important part of my life, but it's definitely something that we did. Um, so I had experiences outside of the small town. Um, I grew up in the, the 80s, and the town that, that I grew up in is a factory town. So uh, the 80s were, you know, it, it was just, it, if you think of what the ideal small town life is, that's, you know, I knew the guy who was the fire chief and we, you know, we knew the postman and it just, it, it probably is this weird cliche of what everyone thinks uh, a, a great upbringing would be. I mean, it was, I could walk down to the playground and just play for hours on end and um, it, was a, it was a great place to, to live, but it also, and I didn't realize this until I was much older, um, there was also a really great food heritage there too. The Pennsylvania Dutch influence was very strong. I didn't get to that intellectual place in life because it was just the food that we ate. Yeah. Uh, in, until later when I started cooking and then I could appreciate more of the flavors that I grew up with because once I moved to uh, New York and lived in Virginia, people weren't as familiar with those flavors. And certainly now being 600 miles removed from it, you know, at least, you know, if you go to just about any great restaurant in New York City, they're going to drop the term Amish as part, it's sort of like a produce drive or it's a quality mark, you know, yeah. that's going to be a great uh, piece of produce or, or meat. Um, so there was some familiarity with it, but, um, you know, things like Scrapple and pork and sauerkraut and uh, hog maw, which is a stuffed pig stomach, those, those were all things that you drive by any fire hall and they were going to have a hog mall dinner or they were going to have a scrap on pancake breakfast and so things that people are like uh, did you really eat that growing up like this seems like some foreign concept that's just what in the same way that someone who grows up in France to be a chef is influenced by French cooking uh, I was influenced by the those foods so thinking about uh, the food culture of the Amish yep. they are descendants of is it primarily Dutch German as well I mean it's, you have it's, so it's it's almost entirely German. The okay. Dutch part comes in because German is Deutsch, and that got pushed into Dutch. So it doesn't really have anything to do with the Netherlands, which okay. some people think. It's, it's, and there are areas of Pennsylvania where you can go, and they're still speaking uh, a German dialect. You wow. Know, there's definitely some. And I, you know, I, it, it depends on if I've been on the phone with someone that I grew up with or I was recently home. I definitely will get picked on a little bit down here because of some of those, the accent will come back. And it of course. Is, it's very, uh, well, it's like anyone who grew up in the South is going to have a Southern Yeah, of course. Yeah. And if they, my wife, when she moved to New York, she had a, her first boss was very adamant about kind of uh, taking that away from her because he just thought that that's unfortunate. She would get taken advantage of because she would be, you know. Oh, uh, is this some, some southerner some that was southern naive to the city? Is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, she's going to be naive to the, the workings of the city. So, so you have the Dutch, or so I, I think about, I, I have family in a little country called Liechtenstein, which sits yep. right in between Austria and Switzerland, about 30 miles long. Yep. Visited there, and visiting my family there, they said that, you know, as little as 10 minutes away, away excuse me, in the, in the mountainous part of that country they spoke a high german they spoke a different german that they had trouble understanding each other now you think about the the amish growing up in these communities are they still i mean german first language i mean as far as I mean, they're not really integrating with people that aren't 
yeah. part of their culture. So that, that has to be a fascinating sort of like, it's almost like the, uh, the Truman Show or something in a way. You know, it's like you have this bubble, and, and it's not just Pennsylvania, but you have even in Kentucky, there's a big Mennonite and Amish population. I mean, it's, very, it's a fascinating cultural phenomenon that exists. Yeah, and there are, I mean, when, when I was in Pennsylvania, we would use, there's a, a collective or co-op of, of Amish farmers in more central Pennsylvania um, called Path Valley. And Path Valley is a geographical place. Um, and when we went to visit them, uh, my wife speaks uh, not Pennsylvania Dutch, but actual German. And we went to visit one farm, and there were a couple little children playing in the farm out in the fields. And we were talking, and it was obvious that they didn't understand what we were saying. So we were just speaking... English um, so she said to the to the young boy do you like carrots in German and his his eyes lit up because that's their first uh, language and there's a great article in the Washington Post I think it was yesterday actually about the Path Valley co-op um, all of their meetings are still conducted in Pennsylvania Dutch they, so it's you, they're not speaking English uh, and when you would deal with them there was a woman who was in charge of getting all of their products in and then disseminating that information to chefs. And she was not Pennsylvania Dutch, so they would refer to her as the English woman. <laughs> uh, so it really is, I mean, there, and it, there's an island in the Chesapeake Bay called Smith Island, and people haven't been, it's a very insular culture. They, when you go there, they still, they have a very English accent. They were there in the late 1600s, and it's, it's like you've gone to London. Yeah. So I find those cultural things fascinating, you know, much like Kentucky has uh, some pockets, but Path Valley is somewhat isolated. Lancaster County, where you, you know, you would see they have a great tourism uh, board. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, the pictures of the, the buggy yeah. and, and they, uh, there, there are carpentry shops, there are things that the Amish have come off the farm to do. And then there are you know, we could probably do an entire podcast just on the difference between Amish and Mennonite Absolutely. Uh, culture. And, but the, the food, um, there are a lot of similarities to the food. The food is very home-based. So when you uh, are trying to research items, it's difficult because they're, uh, the thing that is huge and, and it's awful, they have these smorgasbords, big buffets in Lancaster County. Buses pull up of tourists and it's quaint to see the, the buggy and then it's just, I mean, it's a, it's football fields long buffets and it's a little bit uh, bastardization of the cuisine. So to be able to find some of these older recipes and find people cooking them, it's not like you can go to a restaurant and find an 80 year old chef and say, sir, can I work for you for free for a week so I can learn some of these things. And because the culture is very, I would say closed off, mm -hmm. um, it makes it uh, a little difficult to try and trace down the actual essence of a recipe because if you're going to take some of these flavor profiles and try and uh, make them contemporary, you have to first know the rules of the original before you can break them. Absolutely. So, uh, and I do, I find that there are a lot of similarities between the Pennsylvania Dutch, Dutch culture and the Southern foodways. Um, they're both based on agriculture. They're both based on um, pickling, preserving, canning, using every bit of the animal to get through a winter time when you know, there's no mass transportation, there's no refrigeration. 
it is, uh, and I've, I found recipes from both, you know, now that I'm, we're living in the South, um, the similarities that it'd be a really interesting book for someone to write about how those cultures are similar and then also how they're, they're different. You just gave me an idea. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, so thinking about the, the, the food that is available to people living in Pennsylvania, let's just say Lancaster County, for an example, are is are these similar in any way brought over? Like if you're cooking in Germany, are you cooking with these same food items or were they just cooking with what was available to them? And my question, the second part of that would be growing up in your house, did you sort of, did your family do takes on these dishes? Um, those are the, kind of the two-parter there, I guess. Yeah. Well, um, part of the reason that the when the Germans came to the United States, one of the reasons that they settled in Lancaster County, and then there's, Lancaster County is the county that gets the most press and that people most closely associate with Amish and Mennonite and German settlers. There's actually a larger population of them in Ohio. But hmm. both of those areas are very, very similar um, geographically to Germany. So the things that they were growing, they were able to grow here. So the I've never been to, you know, Germany's like first on my list when I get back to Europe. Um, my wife has been, she's also spent some time in Switzerland. And uh, the foods are uh, more, it's not like they came to the United States and did a take on what they had. They were able to produce the things that they were having there in the United States. And then I, it would seem that they added to mm -hmm. those. But um, Evolution of, of food culture, basically, sure. and tweaking and, recipes. And, you know, <clears throat> being in a, a new area, exact same thing when I moved to Nashville there are recipes that we were using in Pennsylvania that we still have in Nashville they just changed a little bit because mm -hmm. as you know as you're a, a human and you're cooking or eating or drinking um, your experiences influence what you're doing next Absolutely. so when you have great or sometimes when you have awful experiences everything that is happening is influencing you if you're paying attention if your eyes are really open um, everything that comes at you throughout the day is influencing your next step. And I sort of feel like if you're not using those experiences to influence your next step, then you're stuck. So when you got into this, when you, when you decided, you know, maybe that light bulb moment, whatever it was where you're like, I want to be a chef, I want to do this, was this food at the time something that no. you wanted to cook? It sounds like it came to you later in life, right? It Almost did. like a happy accident, like this blessing yeah. that came back to you. I, I guess my... My question would be, how old, kind of old were you when you decided you want to be a chef, and what was the first step to kind of make that happen? I, I really decided my dad worked in restaurants in order to pay his way through college. Uh, and then as I was much younger, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old, he would still do, uh, he had a great friend who owned a restaurant. He would do these banquets where he would stand and carve prime rib on the weekends to make some extra money. Um, and so we were very good friends with the chef at that restaurant, or he was, and I just, you know, I still have these vivid memories of him coming out. And so this is the early 80s, the tall white hat, you know, the long white apron. And, <laughs> and he just looked so, just looking in command, you yeah. know. And, and so at 14, um, I asked if I could go and wash dishes at that restaurant because I thought that I wanted to do that for a living. And my dad actually said no. He's like, why don't you, let's think about something else for you to do because it's long hours, you stand on your feet all the time. It's really hard work. And so maybe, so I went and I worked at a golf course because I don't think it gets much easier than driving around a golf cart collecting trash. Yeah. Um, that was the first instance of, I felt like I wanted to work in a restaurant. I went through, I went to college and worked in the 
you know, the real world. Um, and then that, I wasn't very interested in the job that I was in, so I quit and decided that I would go back to school and get my teaching certification and be a, a teacher like my parents because it, in my early 20s, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I'm not sure if most people do. Nope. <laughs> and so it was, you know, I had grown up with my parents. My dad was a, a principal of a middle school. Uh, that was the, you know, it was the family business, was being a, a teacher. And I, at the time, I loved playing golf. So I thought, what? Well, I'll go and I'll teach, you know, history or something to be the golf coach, and that'll be life. So in order to pay for it, I started working at a country club as a waiter and um, was not a very good waiter, quite frankly. I was always in the kitchen. Um, so they could never find me until they figured out that I was always in the kitchen. And I really latched on to the speed, the teamwork, and the camaraderie of being in the kitchen. It wasn't like I had this, uh, my mom's a great cook and my dad's a great cook, but I don't have this story of you know, being at their apron string, feeling potatoes as a three-year-old. It just, that wasn't, that wasn't it. And I didn't even really come to beginning cooking um, because I fell in love with a beat and I thought it would be, you know, there's no romance to it. That's okay. For, for me, it was, uh, it was the people and the teamwork. I mean, I had, I had been in team sports as a kid and um, I went to college for, for music. So I was a performance artist. So the the shock to the system of working holidays and working weekends was just, I was already accustomed to that. Yeah. Um, and then when I got into it and started really, you know, just cooking, um, the first cuisine that I really latched onto was the cuisine of the American South, which is fun that I'm here now. Mm -hmm. um, but I just started buying, the first thing that I did was I went to the library and checked out all of the books on Southern food and uh, then I started buying a lot of Southern cookbooks and I thought that was the, if I was going to cook on my own and I wanted to learn something or the chef was going to allow me to contribute a special, it was rooted in um, the South America. I still vividly remember getting this book called the, the cookbook from the Magnolia Grill in Durham. Um, and I just, I abused those books. I mean, I just really dug into them and wanted to learn it wasn't so much the recipes. I didn't care um, about the recipes. I cared about the perspective. You know, when you get a cookbook, there's always that first paragraph underneath the title of what the recipe is. I would go through and I would read all of those. And I would read them the about the restaurants. Because I always figured that recipes to me are they're like a math equation. Like once you've got it down and you follow the right steps, it's gonna come out. Yeah. But I wanted to know like what was the inspiration behind why would you put these ingredients together? Why does that make sense? Um, so I, you know, I cooked for a bunch of years. The chef eventually pulled me aside and said, listen, if you want to go any further, you need to go to culinary school and get a degree because no one's going to make you a chef of their place if you don't have a degree. And this is still in Pennsylvania at this yeah. point. And so and I, obviously I guess the next step is then culinary school and you yeah. went and then, and then from there, I'm assuming you went to New York first, or is that New York kind of a secondary place? Or? I went to culinary school in New York, in okay. Hyde Park. Uh, I Googled what the best culinary school in the country was, <laughs> uh, because as you know, I had already been to undergrad school, I'd already done school, and I was kind of, even though my parents were teachers, I wanted to get on with life. Yeah, so absolutely. So I also figured if I was going to go back to school, then why not apply to what people consider as the best school in the country? So I did. I got in. Um, so that was in, the school was in Hyde Park. 
Connor Institute of America. The, you know, my New York experience was taking the train into New York City and working for free while I was in school. When I got done, as part of an externship, I went to a great restaurant in Virginia and worked there. Then, you know, because I was older and because I had had experience before I went to culinary school, I got a job as a sous chef at a small restaurant outside of Baltimore. That lasted for a couple months. And then I got my first chef job outside of Philadelphia. Wow. Okay. Uh, so New York, Virginia, yep. Baltimore, yep. finally Philadelphia. Yep. What in, in Philadelphia, I hear a lot now that there's a, a food scene there that is sort of uh, developing, maybe in, in the way that Nashville's food scene has been developing. What was that? I mean, you're back in your home state. How, right. does, how does that experience at this point shape you? Are you yet kind of into the into the... The style of cooking, which, which is kind of defines you now, or are you still just sort of learning? You're just accruing. You're you're I, learning how to run a kitchen and all that. And yeah, I was still copying at that point. Okay. Um, and I think that that that's a something that you just you know any creative person needs to own up to. Until you can really find your way, the best way to learn is to find other people who have done an extraordinary job. Take the great things, learn from them. Take the bad things, learn from them, and inform your own way. Yeah. So my first chef job, I was still very much digging into, and I, you know, still the acquisition of knowledge is very important to me. But I was digging into cookbooks, and I was like, you know what, that's a great recipe. I'm just going to put that on the menu. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until um, the end that I was working at sold, and there was an opportunity to move back to my hometown and uh, open a restaurant there in another inn. Um, that's where I think I started to find my own way as far as what I wanted out of a restaurant experience, both in the kitchen and also for the guests. Um, the people that wanted to build the restaurant, I mean, they had a hundred year old mansion wow. in this town. They were, you know, it's a factory town. Yeah. They were the owners of the factory. Oh, okay. okay. So they also had a 2000 acre farm. I was able to build with my dad a 10,000 square foot garden that would service the restaurant. Um, and then I was able to reconnect with all of these flavors and ideas that I had, that were right in front of me as a kid. But what are you gonna do with it as a kid? Eat it, you know I mean? Now I could use what those flavor profiles that were in my head, reinterpret them for a contemporary audience. And at that point, that's when the light bulb went off that no one really is exploring this culture in a modern context. Um, so I really dug in pretty heavily there and spent about six years doing it. Every year we would add something. Uh, the garden would get bigger. We would maybe do whole animal butchery. There are a lot, because of where it's situated, there are a lot of farmers who, if you pull up any menu in Baltimore or DC, you know, now the big thing on menus is to put the farm name with whatever the mm -hmm. product is. Those farms are probably within a 20 mile radius of where that restaurant was. So I was able to get those products and those people became my really great friends. Um, way easier for them to not have to drive it an hour or two hours. I could just come and pick up a pig or a lamb or the, the produce. Um, so that was really an important part of me growing into the creative part of being a chef. I think you said something earlier that was really important was that it's not just the creative part. Early on in my career, part of it was trying to learn how to run a kitchen, trying to learn how to manage people, manage people, <laughs> and be you know. So those things you have to have both of those pieces. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I've, I've met many chefs who either have one or the other. They, they manage a very great kitchen that is kind of stagnant. It's the same menu, and that's that's great. Um, and then I've met a lot of chefs who are wildly creative, and it just doesn't. They can't either can't manage people. There's a business aspect to. Uh, I mean, a you've got a bottom a line. You've got a number. Yeah, yeah. you've got to you've got to make money. So. Um, learning that part and then really finding uh, my voice. Um, I think that that all happened in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Because of where we were located in a small town, I mean, it, the restaurant was busy on Friday and Saturday nights and it was primarily busy with people who are coming from DC or Philadelphia or Baltimore to experience the restaurant. It was not going to be able to be sustained by the people who lived in the town. It was a, you know, uh, Red Lobster was a, that's a great, it was a great night out. And, and yeah. th- that's not a judgment. That's just, it's, it's what it's, you have. It's, it's, it's available. You know? yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I remember when a, uh, what's it called? Lone Star. One of these steakhouse yeah. chains came in and it was huge news. I mean, people are, uh, Buffalo Wild Wings came into the town and people camped out for three days because the Buffalo Wild, they wanted to be the first people in the Buffalo Wild Wings because wow. they would get like free wings for a year or something. And I thought I'm, I'm bringing in this milk fed, pig and breaking it down it's beautiful and it's this product that in dc or baltimore or philadelphia people would just be beside themselves and so it just you know the idea of the great european destination inn and restaurant yeah you know there are a couple instances of it uh in the united states blackberry farm i think is a great uh Uh example of it and where i worked in virginia the inn of little washington was probably the first version of it um, but it's you have to have something else going for you. I mean, if you're going to Blackberry Farms, you're in the middle of the Smoky Mountains, you know. And if you're it's a destination, right? Yeah. If you're, it's a destination for more than just food and wine. And there, you know, you're if you go to Blackberry Farms, you can rent a Harley and drive around the Smoky Mountains. Well, awesome, you know. I mean, yeah. those kind of things. This town was, you know, it was a, it was a small factory town. People weren't coming um, because it was a beautiful town to tour. Um, so it was. That restaurant was difficult. Um, the, the work that we did there, I still look back on some of my notes and think, wow, that was a really interesting and creative dish. Had we done 32-ounce um, prime rib with a baked potato, we would have been a lot better off. I mean, <laughs> I might still be there. You know, And that's the reality of it. I mean, again, it's, it's a business. So yeah. um, I'm very thankful for the time that I was able to spend there. I mean, how many people in there... 30s are able to say that they spent six years of their life within, you know, a, a solid two iron of where they grew up and where their parents currently live. I mean, I had six years where I was in very close proximity to my to my family. That's great, you know. I mean, and the older I get, the more I look back on that part of my life and think how thankful I am to be able to have had that experience when I was in it. You know, sure, I was super pissed off about why we couldn't get more people to the restaurant and I'm in this little town. And um, But now that I look back on it and think, that's, there's no value that I can put on that experience. Absolutely. And it was just, it was great. I, I, I live, my parents live on the other side of the country and I very much value the two weeks a year sure. I get to spend with them. So I, I you know, that, that must have been an amazing situation to spend yeah. that time with them as an adult. Yeah. Um, so you think at this point, okay, you, you are and it, even just thinking just briefly like with some of these iconic musicians on the wall behind you how 
you can probably, like you said, have the most creative chef or the most creative musician. And it's unfortunate that if somebody can't manage that, the business side of it, you feel like the most creative, probably chefs never had a chance to exist because they could never probably get off the ground. It's just kind of a, you know, an esoteric thought on it. But so at this point, you, you've had this experience, you, you've had this restaurant that, you know, these people probably have this kind of food available to them all the time, and so they're not as interested, and, and the people in D.C. who have the Buffalo Wild Wings crave that, and there's this juxtaposition there. But, uh, but then you find yourself coming to Nashville, and right before we get into that, I just, you said Southern food inspired you. How would you define Southern food? I mean, just... I know that's a, a really broad question. You don't yeah. have to, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not trying to make it uh, difficult for no. you. But, uh, you know, Southern food is, is evolved, I'm sure, to some extent as well. And I'm just kind of curious what your take is on maybe how you define it, what it's evolved into. So I think that uh, partly I'll, I'll punt a little bit on that one because the defining Southern food, you know, there's, there's obviously the, um, the low country of, of South Carolina, and that, that's its own thing and and then you can move further away from that so there are there are definitely different uh microclimates if you will of, of southern food so I, more what i latched on to was uh i latched on to chefs who had restaurants in the south that were interpret and, and they were from the south and they were interpreting foods that they grew up with and i also feel like the south i mean you know i guess california gets a lot of credit um because of their climate for you know, sort of the California-based cuisine of fresh vegetables and, and the local sourcing. But I really feel like, and I could, I could be wrong because I haven't actually researched it, so it's just like, this is just a thought. I, I sort of feel like the farm-to-table movement was really inspired in the South and really kind of started here where you would start to look and um, you could look on people's menus and say you know, they were sourcing so-and-so's pork or they were sourcing vegetables from here so as far as the inspiration there i don't know that it was conscious in the moment yeah it's almost like now 747 i'm actively <laughs> sucking all the air out of the room so they have to pump more in um i i don't know that it was conscious at the time but if you think about what i just said you know i was following chefs who were cooking in their home area they were reinterpreting or interpreting foods that they had grown up with and they were in the south all of that then years later transfers exactly to what i was doing in pennsylvania so i think what i latched on to was uh the honesty of the cooking and also i mean i grew up uh, every year we would go to myrtle beach south carolina for vacation we spent a lot of time in virginia so the idea of the virginia country ham was something that like i could latch on to i could I had a basis of knowledge for so the food of the american south like first of all i loved eating it was delicious but it was a you know i could latch on to that in a way that i couldn't latch on to the great chefs of france or even like the food of the pacific northwest or the food of uh the cajun and creole food i mean paul prudhomme and uh, later emerald those are areas that i had never been to and i didn't necessarily have an association with so looking back on it, I mean, I think it was pretty natural to, um, to go to the food of the American South. And, and so, you know, what defines it, I think was just a, for me, a real honesty in the cooking and then also the, the sourcing and the stories behind all of it. I mean, there, 
how many hundreds of thousands of restaurants are there for people to go to, and especially now in Nashville, there are a ton of restaurants to go to. So the idea of having a story and an experience and a real honesty to the food, I think is very important because I think people can feel that. What a crazy, to just culturally as well again, I mean, you have this element not too far away in Pennsylvania with this German influence. And then I, I've spent a little time in South Carolina and I've visited old plantations and I've heard the stories and you have these barrier islands that have these heritage heirloom seeds and, and, and grain. And, and to think you have this like West African influence kind of on a convergence with this European influence and what a fascinating creation. It's almost like rock and roll. You know, it's like kind of the way it was created the same way the food culture mirrors that in a way, you know, truly uniquely. And probably another uh whole nother podcast is I think that you very clearly defined uh, American cuisine because that's always you know what is American cuisine well it, it's very easy to say you know well, there's the California segment and there's this Creole and Cajun segment and there's the New England portion of it but I think that the convergence of all of them is what American cuisine actually is yeah when you have these influence from an influence from West Africa. And there's even some German influence in the, the high country, I guess they call it, of, of South Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, you can see where all of these things are kind of uh, commingling. And again, a lot like the birth of rock and roll, which you wouldn't have rock and roll if you didn't have an influence from here, mixing with an influence from there. And, you know, then you have Elvis who's, you know, moving things together. And yeah. just, that's, that's what makes, you know, I think that's what's really special about things that we can truly call American. Because interpreting Pennsylvania Dutch cuisine isn't necessarily on its own American cuisine. It's interpreting German cuisine that was brought over to the United States. Yeah. But taking Pennsylvania Dutch cuisine, bringing in some Southern influence, bringing in some French influence, then you're actually composing an American cuisine, which is way more intellectual than uh, everyone who opens a restaurant now, well, what kind of restaurant is it that's modern American? Well, okay, but what does that really mean? And so if you, you know, if we wanna very quickly get to, uh, you know, we're sitting in Prima now and, and also with Josephine, they are very clearly modern American restaurants because there's the Pennsylvania Dutch influence melding with the southern influence melding with the french influence and so they're they're modern american because they're based off of uh, a, an idea of personality cuisine it's again back to everything that happens to me today is influencing the food that you're going to eat tomorrow i was going to say so that's sort of what you i'm glad you brought up prima of course where we're sitting um, starting with josephine here several years ago had being very successful and and now sort of you know taking on this project as well mm -hmm. Is that what you wanted to convey to your to your audience to your to your city here? Is that you wanted to sort of present this modern American ver convergence once again of, of Southern German French come together, create what what is now the melting pot of uh, American food culture, and just present that the best you could, I guess. And also, one hundred percent influenced and informed by Nashville. Yeah. So all of those things coming together, but. Um, you know, thankfully, both restaurants are on the same street. I get a lot of mileage between. Uh, up and down say, south. you know the strip of uh, you know the yeah, strip of twelve south. No, well. anybody. Uh, we're gonna put a zip line in from Prima <laughs> to, to Josephine. Um, I think that you know, as far as what 
I want people to to get and, and what we're presenting is yes a very modern American look at food through my eyes and you know the, the restaurants are two uh, entirely different spaces they have they both now have a fantastic beating heart to them um, I like to say that the DNA of the restaurants is uh, the same uh, and hopefully you will be able to go to both of them and know throughout the entire experience, whether it's the wine service, the service in general, the food, the atmosphere, or just the overall feel of when you're sitting there, you're gonna know that, that somewhere uh, it was, you know, I get Andy's style. Like I can, I, I know that there is definitely a style to this um, and that there, you know, you know, you can, if, uh, let's say the Foo Fighters, if you uh, turn on the radio, you know a Foo Fighters song. Yeah, you of course. You do. Yeah. Even if it's a new album. And here's a better example. Have you heard Dan Auerbach's new album? I haven't, no. But is it uniquely his it's, sort of like... It's different. Slightly... Or is it not? Or it's, is it... It's even different for him. Okay. But you can tell... You can till, still tell that that's Dan Auerbach. Just the ambience, the feel of it. But it's just, you know, there's something about his voice. There's something about the way it's produced. Um... It, and it's nothing like the last album, but you still know. Um, I, I really want the restaurants to feel that way. I really want uh, people to feel like, while they may go to Prima for Experience X and Josephine for Experience Y, the sum of them is, you know, comes from the same beating heart. It was just kind of, uh, you know, brought into the city. And the city of Nashville really plays an important part in the two restaurants. You know, I know that there are a ton of restaurants for people to choose from in Nashville. That's kind of the, the beginning of this, the, the explosion of restaurants that's happening. Mm -hmm. And that honestly, that only happens um, because people are so interested. Um, so we have to be very thankful for the dining public in Nashville. Um, I know there are a lot of places for people to choose from, and I think that that's great. And so what do you, you know, what do you do? What, what are we trying to provide for people to, so that they have a great experience? I've, I've worked right down the street from you for the last five years, and to, to, so to see the city kind of, you know, grow around this has been kind of an incredible thing to watch, especially when the Gulch didn't have sidewalks or streetlights or abandoned warehouses, and it was literally kind of maybe a little dangerous to walk yeah. to your car at night, and now sure. to see what it is, I mean, it's it's really kind of incredible, um, and, and thinking about now these restaurants here that, that represent that, I, I, a couple, like one or two more questions, and I'll let you go, I appreciate sure. this time today. Yeah. Um, what if would you say is there a dish that defines you like a, a summation that's such a tough question you don't have to answer that maybe there's a couple and i would say if, if somebody is coming in here to try your new menu is there a dish that they have to try you know something that you're like i'm just so in love with this dish right now i i think it represents what i'm trying to do um and however you want to answer this of course i, I mean i think there are two first of all there are two distinct dining options at prima one is the a la carte menu and the other is the tasting menu and you suggest the tasting. I'm I mean, if they really <laughs> want to get an idea of yeah, you have exactly to. what you know what we're doing here, the tasting menu is, is the way to go. Uh, from an you know, from the a la carte standpoint, um, I think that there are a couple things that are very important to me. One is, I mean, first the food needs to be delicious. Mm -hmm. um, there also needs to be a, a bit of a story to it, and then it needs to look great too. And I mean, this is. Prima's got a super sexy dining room. So it does. The food, 
better be super sexy too. I mean, it better hit the table and people should be craning their neck to see, well, what did, what did you get? Absolutely. The other ancillary benefit to that is you feel special because people are looking to see what you got. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, growing up so close to Chesapeake Bay, uh, hard shell crabs uh, were very, you know, something that we always had in the summer. So we're sourcing some great fresh jumbo lump crab meat from Alabama. There's, it's a very simple crab salad. Um, but it looks beautiful. Uh, it has a story, you know, there's the, and I also just love fresh crab, but, um, so we've got the fresh crab. There's a charred scallion underneath who both restaurants have wood fire only grills, no gas. So, um, that's in there. There's a little bit of old bay, which is kind of the, you know, Emerald has his essence to me. Growing up, my dad put, he'd put Old Bay on a cereal. Um, <laughs> everything had Old Bay in it. And so Josh. that's, you know, if there is a secret background spice that you're trying to guess on some game show here, that that's it. Old Bay. Yeah. So I think the, the crab salad and then the, the finished garnishes for it all come from a little uh, garden that we put up because Prima is situated in what's a very urban location and in a, a wonderful building. Still wanted to have that connection to the to the soil. Um, you know, again, it was very important to me in Pennsylvania. I grew up with a vegetable garden, so we built three boxes uh, off of the parking garage here, and they hold all of the garnishes for the plate. So when you see a flower or you see a, a leaf or you know uh, anything, the top of that crab salad is decorated with garnishes from here. So I think that's a pretty neat story too. Absolutely. Um, okay, last question. This is. Probably the least important question, but uh, just so the people at home know, if I were to open your fridge, what would I find at home? Uh, I, uh, so my wife has, has passed her uh, first level Somali exam. Good for her. Did she, she just take it recently? Uh, in the fall. And nice. She's studying for level two. Okay. So while the wine that we drink is uh, always very interesting, uh, I have a distinctly lowbrow palette for beer so you would <laughs> you would find a 12 pack of natural light i love that <laughs> who doesn't love natural light i mean <laughs> um, that and i've tried other ones i mean she you know, uh karen bought me a six pack of miller high life uh the champagne of beers yeah last week and great, I had one great marketing and I thought, this is not, not the champagne, champagne of beers <laughs> um so I do I love I love Natty Light just like you honestly that's like my favorite lowbrow like shitty beer I well, do love Natty Light. To me it's like alcoholic <laughs> Pellegrino. You know, it doesn't taste like anything. You could run a marathon still drink this be yeah, okay. You, you could shotgun that while you're running a marathon and be fine. Um, so there there would be that there would definitely be the, you know, the That's basically the fridge. At any point in time is that and it's sort of condiments. Yeah, um, that's funny. That's one thing I feel, I feel like chefs say they have a huge, like not a lot of like solid big portion ingredients, but a ton of condiments. A lot of condiments and string cheese. Okay. <laughs> um, those are always there. And then it depends on if family was visiting. Um, my wife goes nuts when family comes to visit. So the fridge would be overloaded at that point. But condiments, string cheese, and uh, natural light. That's awesome. That's a, that, that couldn't, there couldn't have been a more perfect answer for that. Um, Chef, I thank you so much for sitting down and just telling your story, and, and I'm excited for people to hear this. Um, I'd love to uh, someday, which will probably never happen because uh, chefs are extremely busy people, but uh, maybe sit down one night, crack a bottle of wine, maybe yeah. with you and your wife, turn the mics on again, and just hear you guys kind of talk about the things you love in this. So uh, 
maybe in the future I'll, I'll, uh, I'll uh, reach out again yeah. and see if that's a possibility And because uh, I, I love this stuff. I really love uh, I would love that. I'd also extend the invitation to you to uh, come in and work in the kitchen for a day and uh, see what that's all about. Don't dare me because I, I, I uh, humble brag, I, I think I'm the only front of house employee at this point that um, has asked and, uh, and cooked family meal on several occasions for the staff. And what a, an educational and humbling thing to cook for 60 people to make it work yeah. and, and to show up there and just be in that time crunch. I love doing it when I get a chance and I love yeah. exploring kitchens. So. We'd love to have you here, put a coat on you and, and let it go. Thank you so much, Chef. All right, thank you. All right.